Hey, my name's Jamie Poisson, and I'm the host of Frontburner. It's the CBC's daily news podcast. And every day we're discussing the big events and fault lines shaping Canada and the world. Politics, economics, social movements, you name it. Sometimes we even talk about really fun stuff like the enduring relevance of Lord of the Rings. You can hear Frontburner on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. As Indigenous people, our connection to the land is at the core of who we are. Every river, lake, and piece of land had a name and a story. It might tell us what the land looked like, who lived there, or whether the area had good hunting and fishing ground. Stories handed down and remembered. And it suddenly struck me. This is his land. This is his home. This has meaning to him. It's not just a paper map. Since early contact, our lands have been renamed by Canada settlers. Many of our traditional place names were erased, replaced. Some were derogatory. I was parked beside a lake that had the name Kilsquaw Lake. Others are a reminder of a dark history. Christopher Columbus is not our story. He never even landed in North America. Why is his name on anything in North America? A history that we are still trying to reconcile. I said I'm shutting down the parkway for about six hours, and I was going to do this every uh, September 30th until the, uh, the name changed. But now that is changing. Or should I say, name changing. Hello and welcome. This is Unreserved on CBC Radio 1. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. Returning traditional names on a map in Gwich'in territory. Renaming lakes in the prairies and parkways in the capital that honor instead of debase. These problematic place names are being replaced and the solutions come from Indigenous communities. Today, the returning of names. The Gwich'in live in the northwestern part of Turtle Island. Their lands stretched from Alaska, Yukon, and the Northwest Territories. You wouldn't know that looking at most maps. But thanks to the work of two women and community elders, those place names will again carry Gwich'in language and knowledge. Alistine Andre is a Gwich'in researcher from Tsegachik, formerly known as the Arctic Red River. Ingrid Critch is an anthropologist and archaeologist from Ontario. For the last 30 years, the duo have been researching and returning traditional place names in their territory, And it all began with a summer research project in the early 1990s. The research that happened back in the early 1990s was very new to to me and to, uh, I'm sure, us and also the elders. And we had taped together topographic maps. I think it was 1 to 50,000 scale, and Ingrid can correct me there. So we had taped it all together. So we were walking through town with this 
huge um, set of maps and walking to each of our interviews. And looking back today, it was a very intensive summer, five or six weeks of just straight interviews. And that's what I remember. Mm. And Ingrid, uh, what role did you play in that in that project? Well, we were we were uh, joint partners in this research. We'd been hired by an archaeologist, actually, who was doing some archaeology north of the community. And he wanted to have a better understanding of the traditional use of the area. And so he hired Alistine and I to record traditional land use, including place names as part of that sort of corpus of information. I think, you know, looking back, um, it was one of the best ways ever to start doing research and understanding about the Gwich'in. It was wonderful. And uh, to have Alistine as a partner, we actually still work together after 30 odd years. So, um, What interested you in this work, Alistine? What, what got you interested in doing this? Uh, well, it just happened, I think, by chance, I think, because previous to the early 1990s, I was involved in a, a oral history workshop and uh, Ingrid was one of the other participants. So we kind of chummed up together at that workshop and and the opportunity came a few years later when I was back in uh, Tsigechik uh, and to do the work with the elders. So I think in place names, I think it was always there with me when I grew up. So to delve into it a little bit more was very interesting. And also because I went to residential school, I didn't know too much of the, the names of the places on the lands. We were fortunate, uh, I think, as uh, our, our family were uh, always on the land and we were taken from the land and then brought down to the community of Tsigechik, then flown either to Aklavik and Yuvik or and then later on to Yellowknife. So um, we were fortunate because uh, at the end of June, my father would and mother would pick us up by boat and we would go up the river about... Um, that 45 miles up the river I was talking about along the Mackenzie River is our summer fish camp. And so at the fish camp, um, too, there was always uh, like people uh, coming by and like whenever our people met, they always sat down and told stories and talked about this and that. And they always mentioned place names. And in my in my mind at the time growing up, I only knew the names of the places along the river. This was a really good introduction back to uh, the different uh, names that our people used when they navigated and traveled on the land and told their stories. That's wonderful. Ingrid, what drew you to the work? My earlier career was as an archaeologist. I started in uh, in the James Bay area working with the Cree. And uh, that was a time when the Lagrand uh, 2 project, the Hydro project, was being um created. I was at McGill University, young undergraduate, and uh, having the experience of working with the Cree elders from, at that time, Fort George, was quite eye-opening. You know, being there right on the land, on their traditional lands, working beside a, a site that was several hundred years old, but which they had still inhabited just the winter before. They had a winter camp set up so we could see the structure of the, the lodge. We could see the castorium. 
hung up in the trees that was used for for the bait on traps. We learned, you know, how to make a mitwap, uh, the traditional tight teepee style of the home. Learned how to cut spruce boughs and create uh, spruce flooring inside of the lodge and how to make bannock on a stick. And these are all like fantastic types of experiences that had a big impact on me. And so in um, it took a while, but later on, I I did graduate work and ended up in Edmonton at University of Alberta and then in, in Yellowknife. And as Alistine said, that's when we met up at a oral traditions workshop. Uh, I was working for the, the Denny Cultural Institute at the time and looking for a traditional community to work in so I could do my doctorate research. And I'd read this book, Hugh Brody's book, Maps and Dreams. That's really what brought me back to, to go to graduate school. The picture that he painted, you know, of, of the uh, the Athabascan Indigenous people he worked with, at that time were called the beaver. It was so vivid and, and, and uh, deep. So I had in my mind to try to do that kind of work, but not as an archaeologist, but as an anthropologist. And so when this opportunity arose to work with Alistine, I really jumped at it and thought this was uh, just a, it'd be a wonderful experience. Mm. And how many place names were you able to return and reclaim in, in the territory? Uh, in the end, I think we collected, uh, I'll just give a, like I say, an approximate number of maybe 900, wow. maybe 1,000. Yeah. And Ingrid will have the the the, <laughs> the number off the top of her tongue. Yeah. Ingrid? Quite a bit. Well, no, it really, it, it, 900 named places. So there's actually, you know, I was thinking about that earlier and thinking, boy, so I think we collected even more because many places have more than one name. But let's say 900 to 1,000 uh, name, which in name places were recorded by us. And, and then it wasn't only the place names were recorded. So Alistine was doing the interviewing with the elders and I was taking notes. And then we had to try and write down like how these names sounded. You know, we had it on tape, but then I was taking notes. So I was trying to figure out how to write them in my notes. And there was lots of laughing because we wanted <laughs> to be, be able to say them back to the elders. So that that's particularly when a lot of the laughing happened, you know, but in a good way. And it was a great way to learn all the name places and then the stories behind the places. So that that was really critical. All the it wasn't just the names, but the the knowledge and the information and history behind the names and in the end, we really look at that as a window into the Gwich'in culture. And why do you feel that it was so crucial that you started this work when you did? Alistine? We were fortunate in um, finding each other to work with, Ingrid and I, but also uh, a lot of credit goes to the elders that um, agreed to work with us and they were agreed so willingly and uh, with no questions asked for us to start recording the names of the places on the land along the trails. So, and it turns out that the elders that we had uh, worked with that first few summers were actually elders that grew up on the land. They were born on the land and they grew up on the land. So that was, I think, very significant. And I think for them to be willing to and interested to work with us. I always I am I'm always really thankful and grateful for that today. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's important to get these these stories and these contexts and these firsthand experience and memories, you know, now while we still have these elders, right? Exactly. And and the thing is that I think it, it was really the elders that encouraged us to go on, you know, collecting all these names and the knowledge behind the names, because we we were just hired that summer to look at one small area of the Gwich'in traditional land use area. And they said, you know, this is only part of our traditional land. You know, we'd like you to come back and actually do up the Arctic Red River and into the Mackenzie Delta. And that's just working with Alistine's community of Tsigay-Chik. There are three other communities that are in the Gwich'in settlement region that we ended up also working with. But so over the course of the winter, Alistine was in school. I was working for the, I believe at the time, the Métis Heritage Association. So we cobbled together funding and to our great surprise, we got enough to, to actually come back and do a second summer of work. And by that time, the Gwich'in Tribal Council, you know, the claim had been signed and uh, the Tribal Council was really interested in this kind of research um, because part of the land claim gives the Gwich'in the right to nominate names for rec- official recognition in their traditional land use area. So it was a good fit. How big a, a, a territory are we talking about here? You've got about a thousand names that you've you've returned and reclaimed. Over how big a space is that? It uh, not only includes the lands within the Northwest Territories, but also in the Yukon. So uh, I'm not sure what the total is. I think in the in the NWT it, it might be around twenty four thousand square kilometers. Um, the Gwich'in lands straddle the, the Mackenzie River from just beyond Fort Good Hope right up to the Anuvik area. And then you go up the Arctic Red right to the headwaters. That's all Gwich'in lands. And you go all the way up the Peel River. And that's a long, long river as well. So it, it's a pretty extensive area. It's a lot of walking is what you're telling me. It's a lot of walking, <laughs> yes. And, it, and it's not just a flat an over flat area. It's through mountains and, and uh, it's very... Uh, yeah, people were very skilled and knowledgeable in their lands. Yeah. yeah. What did your research tell you, uh, Ingrid, about Gwich'in um, place names and its connection to culture? It's a window into the culture, the history, um, you know, knowledge about the lands, uh, where the resources are, you know, so where you could go for caribou, for fish where you could collect ochre that would be used to, you know, color clothing or boats or lodges. The stories related to, to different places on the land, you know, like in Sige Chick, where Alistine's family and where she grew up, um, there's a place uh, there that relates to a, a raven story where he's lost his beak and he tricks the people to get it back. So these old legends are also sort of attached to these named places as well. Uh, sometimes where people lived previously, what a feature looks like. So across from Tsigechik, there is a cliff along the Mackenzie that looks like teeth. And that's what it's called in, in Gwich'in. Yeah, that is wonderful. Um, you talked to many elders, as you said, you interviewed many elders for this project, including Alistine's father. What did he share with you? One of the first interviews we did was with Alistine's dad, Hyacinth Andre, 
And uh, at that time, he was 82 years old, a uh, very fit man, still chopping his own wood, you know, uh, making his own meals. He was very independent. He always had a real twinkle in his eyes, you know, and just a lovely human being. Anyway, so we we went to his house and explained about the project. And then we realized, oh, well, we've got this big map. There's no way it's going to fit on his living room floor. So where do we where do we put it? And he says, well, well come outside. You know, I'll, I'll put a carpet out in front of my steps and we'll uh, put the, the big map out on that, uh, on the tarp and on the carpet. And so that's where we did the first interview was outside and, and beside his house. And uh, he was sitting in a chair. He had a long willow, which he liked to have so he could point to places on the map. And then Alistine would actually mark on the map, you know, we, we we were using initials at the time for the place names and uh, and then marking the trails and the camps and graves and, you know, uh, uh, where people made uh, fish traps, uh, you know, where they collected stone for making stone tools, you know, the whole gamut. He's sitting there, the wind is blowing, so we had to put rocks as well on the sides so to keep the map down from blowing away. away. And we had a tape recorder, which at the time was still used by uh, CBC. <laughs> so it was a good quality tape recorder. We had him mic'd up really nicely. And so he he's pointing out places. And all of a sudden he says, oh, yeah, this, he looks up at me. And he says, because I was actually sitting on the map because I wanted to be sure I could see the initials being drawn on the map and and hear him properly. And he looks up at me and he says, you're sitting in my trapping area. And at first I didn't know, like, oh, have I done something wrong here? You know, should I, should I not be sitting here? You know, and, but he had that glint in his eye and, uh, and it suddenly struck me. This is his land. This is his home. This has meaning to him. It's not just a paper map. This is his life that we're, you know, and knowledge that we're recording. And it's it's very important to him. And he felt it was very important that we understood the importance of all these places and the stories he was telling us. But that that moment there was, I think, quite a critical moment for me, at least, to understand the importance of the work that we were just starting off doing. Mm, that's beautiful. Alistine, what does it mean to have those uh, those stories recorded from your father now? Um, well, actually, it's uh, quite amazing that we were able to record so much, so many stories and stories about the land, uh, stories about traveling on the land. Like this is after we've worked with um, our elders for several years. And then to hear my father telling the stories and now in my head, I could I have the map in my head. I know exactly what where he talks, uh, the different name places, the different place names uh, that he's telling in his stories. Like I know where those those places are, but the amount and the volume of uh, information, you know, about each of the places and about life on the land, you know, that is so. Uh, like there was just so much information, so much knowledge and skill and uh, all that information we were able to record and and to have him like just willingly tell us to just keep on recording and just keep on documenting. 
because that uh, knowledge and all those stories, legends and names of please, uh, people that lived way back then, they're all recorded and now they're all, um, they're all preserved for the future. You're listening to Unreserved on CBC Radio 1, Sirius XM, U.S. Public Radio and Native Voice 1. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. We'll be back with Alistine and Ingrid later in the show. But right now, we're going to head to Quebec, where a Mohawk man wants Montreal to decolumbize. Christopher Columbus is often credited with discovering the new world. Once celebrated as a great explorer, his legacy has shifted from discoverer to invader. Columbus was responsible for the enslavement and massacre of indigenous peoples throughout the Caribbean and the Americas. And now his legacy is being torn down. In recent years, more than 40 Columbus statues have been removed in the United States alone. But his monuments still stand in many streets, parks, towns, and cities. And that's what brings Ganawage Mohawk, Sean French, to march along Avenue Christophe Colomb. My name is Sean French. I'm uh, from Ganawage. I'm uh, 54 years old. It's Avenue Christophe Colomb in Montreal, which is French for Christopher Columbus Avenue. And um, I noticed the situation in 2019 when they were doing the announcements when they started changing the name of Amherst Street in Montreal, which was named after Jeffrey Amherst, the British general that thought up concept of the smallpox-infected blankets to try and exterminate our people. Montreal did change that street name. And so Amherst became Aradagon Street, which roughly translated means brotherhood or cooperation between nations. When they were announcing this, I looked on the map and I was you know, looking at Amherst Street. But as you go up the street, uh, Aradagon would run from down in old Montreal up towards Sherbrooke Avenue in Montreal. It's a north-south street. At the end of the street... At Sherbrooke, it, the street changes its name. It becomes it runs along La Fontaine Park, and the street's name becomes Avenue Park La Fontaine. But then at the end of that park, it changes names once again. And for the rest of the, the rest of the distance across the island of Montreal to the other end of the island, at the north end of the island, it's Avenue Christophe Colomb. The same street that Montreal is making a point of reconciliation with by renaming Amherst to Aradagon, they left the majority of that route named after Christopher Columbus, who's even worse. And I thought, no, that's not acceptable. That must be changed. You know, consulting us with it would be nice, but in the end, Montreal's always put all the street names on there that they choose. Just try to choose a little more wisely this time. It'd be really appreciated. It's an, it's an insult. It's just simply an insult. It's it's a slap in the face. It's It shows me that people have no regard for our feelings about how things are in this land. They, they don't care about the legacy they're, 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 they're honoring. They're Christopher Columbus. But the atrocities they committed, which is so irritating. I mean, the history that the, uh, the Canadians have learned in school is so inaccurate. A lot of it is incomplete. And our portions need to be added to that to make them get the whole story complete. And we should be able to tell our stories. And Christopher Columbus is not our story. He never even landed in North America. Why is his name on anything in North America? And America has Columbia, you know, and Columbus, Ohio, District of Columbia, and Canada has British Columbia. But uh, maybe one day the things will change a bit. Initially, I just made posts on Facebook about it, and then um, I created a few groups on Facebook with the name Decolumbize. 
which is a combination of decolonize and I threw Columbus into it. But all place names related to Columbus, I'm basically trying to get rid of those. And people were agreeing with me on Facebook, but nobody was actually doing anything. So I thought, well, maybe I got to do it myself. So I, I started just doing my own personal protests, just marching on by myself. Just as a show of protest, I marched down Christoph Columbus and out of Dagon, actually, with my warrior flag. And then just talking to people as I met them. So like marching on Christoph Columbus, I started talking to people. I mean, over, overwhelmingly, the support was very positive. I was quite surprised with that. And so I've been marching around the area several times, and my flag, my warrior flag, is uh, actually mounted on a flagpole that swivels. And I have um, a custom harness that I bought that I, I sit the flagpole into, and I march with it that way. So I'm holding it up, and the flag flies behind me. If the wind swings to the right or to the left, the, the pole swings with it, so it, uh, it flies above my head. I have to duck down, though, watch out for some lower trees and street signals. You know, like the intersections, the crosswalk signals and stuff, i got to watch out for those. But overall, I just, I'm just i walking with the flag flying. The the longest march I had there, I walked to uh, the north end of Christoph Plum Avenue. It took me a few hours to make the walk because I was uh, I, I got tired because I am a large person and I'm in my 50s. So uh, it's not exactly an easy walk for me because I'm not in the greatest of shape. I was pretty sore afterwards because uh, I think I did over was it 14, 15 kilometers. I think I walked all together that day. And um, it got dark by the time I got to my, back to my car and went home. Uh, one of the interesting points about the street, Christoph Plum Avenue, at the corner of Cremazie, there's an office building there on the street. That office building happens to be the writing office for Justin Trudeau. I, mean, I know it's not his real office, because I know his real office is in Ottawa. He lives in Ottawa and everything, but he still represents the Papineau riding, and the street does run right to the middle of Papineau riding. His writing office is there on Christoph Plum. To have his name on anything on Turtle Island is an outright insult. And Mr. Trudeau, if you are listening, you need to change it. This runs right past your office. You must have noticed this. You must realize this is an insult. And I mean, and really, it's not up to me because I don't get to choose a street name. I mean, it's Montreal Street. I mean, it's Mohawk land. It's our it's our ancestral territory. I've marched on multiple streets in Montreal, not just Avenue Christophe Colomb, Town St. Catherine. East of Ganawage is part of our is part of our claim. That's our part of our land claim. It's been active with the government for a while. That territory is actually part of Ganawage, and they have a Colomb Avenue. Brassard has one. Boucherville has one. Rapontigny has one. There's a very short Columbus Street in Point Claire. There's um there's another one in Rodden. There's a Park Christophe Colomb in Saint Jean Sur Richelieu, which I've been to that one too. I went to protest there. All place names related to Columbus. I'm trying to get rid of those. This person does not deserve recognition. There's so many names that don't deserve it. But for now, I'll focus on Columbus. Sean French is Ganawage Mohawk. He plans to continue marching down Avenue Christophe Colomb until the name of the street is changed. Hey, my name's Jamie Poisson, and I'm the host of Frontburner. It's the CBC's daily news podcast. And every day we're discussing the big events and fault lines shaping Canada and the world. Politics, economics, social movements, you name it. Sometimes we even talk about really fun stuff like the enduring relevance of Lord of the Rings. You can hear Frontburner on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. Recently, he had a shirt made that reads, quote, Naming things for Christopher Columbus is an insult to Indigenous people. Enough is enough. Hashtag decolumbize, end quote. This is Unreserved on CBC Radio 1, Sirius XM, U.S. Public Radio, and Native Voice 1. 
I'm Rosanna Deerchild. Today, the returning of names. It's about more than just renaming or restoring traditional names within our territories. It can also heal and repair relations. Because as our next guest says, names have power. Some might call it fate or creator-guided, but something led Kelly Watney to the side of a lake one day in 2017. The Cree lawyer from Saskatchewan pulled over and looked up. A sign read, Kill Squall Lake. That started Kelly on a two-year mission to change the derogatory name. I was actually an Arctic Clean student at the time in Saskatchewan. I was coming from a oil and gas hearing and I took a road home, which was different from my usual route. So I had to pull out my maps. I pulled over to the side of the road while I pulled out the maps to figure out what was going on. And I was parked beside a lake that had the name Killsquaw Lake. My name's Kelly Whatney. I'm from Red Pheasant First Nation, located in Treaty 6 Territory, Saskatchewan, Canada. As an Indigenous woman, it was a shock because that type of word, squaw, is derogatory. And uh, we can't have that type of language in Canada or anywhere in North America. Some history around squaw. In Cree, we say esquail for woman, which to short form esquail, the derogatory term for for that word was squaw. That was not a good word. And I just felt that, especially in the location of where we live, that that name should not be there because it's surrounding nine Indigenous communities. When I look back, it was very much a, an awareness that happened and also education. So educating myself to why the, the lake was named that. Through history, I found out that the name was named by an elder in a neighboring community. However, at that time, our elders' first language was Cree, Nihewewin. Elders of that time, their English was broken. And obviously, the translation for um, the oral narrative of the lake was shortened to a very derogatory term. Through that discovery, I consulted the elders in the surrounding area and the leadership and asked for their support and worked with the provincial and federal government. It took us, I think, about two and a half years to get the name change. We got the name changed to Kiskisi Dutawanawak Eskwewak, which translates in Cree to mean we remember the woman as opposed to Kilsquaw Lake. The name change was rectifying the derogatory term. When someone sees that there's a derogatory name that has squaw in it, they're able to contact the provincial government where they have actual like heritage branches and they're able to provide an application to a name change. And so when they go through that process, they have to also include community. They have to consult and really do the work around that part. If the right support's there, you can facilitate change. And even if it's one lake at a time, one name at a time, you're changing the history of a, of a very dark history for um, Indigenous peoples within Canada. 
when I approached the elders, I can I remember I can go back to this. We met on our first meeting was me explaining what I had found and what I had seen and they were supportive. Their guidance and direction is what helped me mainly to get through the process. And the fact that, you know, I took their direction, it was good. We had some elders that had different responses, but the majority were supportive of the initiative. And I think that's that was the biggest step. You know, going back to our elders, our storytellers, our our helpers in the community, our that have lived the life experience, right? And it, it obviously impacted that generation. For me to go back to them was very much the right thing to do and where to start. Words are powerful. Names are powerful. They inform our identity. And with actions like these, we are reminding each other and telling the world that we can learn from our mistakes and move forward together. Even if unintentional, the previous name was harmful. By changing the name, we are giving a voice to the ones who are silenced and to properly respect and honor First Nations women, children, and families. We can no longer have degrading uh, geographic names in Saskatchewan. And I know it's a lot of work, but I, I feel that in the end, if we work together in a good way, that good things will happen. There's a, there's a guidance out there that helps everyone and we, we all have the choice to make good decisions. And, and it doesn't take a lawyer to change a name of a, a geographic area, but I felt that it was my way of giving back and, to, and it was my way to help and assist in, in any way that I could. I think if it, like, I think because of how I approached it, with community, with the elders, with guidance and prayer, I think that's what really made a difference in the whole process of it. Kelly Watney is a Cree lawyer. This is Unreserved on CBC Radio 1, Sirius XM, U.S. Public Radio, and Native Voice 1. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. Earlier in the show, we met Alice Dean Andre and Ingrid Critch. This dynamic duo has been working together for about 30 years to bring back traditional Gwich'in names of hills, lakes, mountains, and communities within their territory. The work has tangible outcomes, with many of these names now officially recognized by territorial governments. We rejoin our conversation with Alistine explaining what it takes to get this official stamp of approval. I think what it takes is uh, to have the the local leadership and to have the elders, like number one behind us, and then having the local leadership, like people at the ban office, um, like um, being behind us and willing and interested to taking the names and submitting them for uh, official recognition through the uh, uh, through the government of the Northwest Territories. It turns out. And so just to have the right people at the right places in the public offices, I think. Is it a difficult process to, to get those names re- returned to where they belong? Every, every jurisdiction is different that way, Rosanna. In the Northwest Territories, we submitted around, I think, around 500 names for official recognition out of the wow. 900. And um, they have the Cultural Places Program at, that's with the 
Prince of Wales Northern Heritage Center, um, there's a person there who's responsible for all the place names for the territories. And so they actually do the review. And uh, in some cases, some of the names border other Indigenous groups. So we had to get permission or, or letters of support, uh, you know, for the name changes. And in the end, with the with the government Northwest Territories, they approved 418 of the names that were submitted. Yeah. So, I mean, that was amazing. <laughs> that was 2013. And then we also submitted over 250 names to the Yukon government about the same time. They have a very different process. They have a board, a geographic place names board uh, with elders and a linguist and, and other people on it. And they just review a handful of names, I think, each year. So to date, um, altogether, from what we've we've heard, 515 of the 900 names that we've recorded have been officially recognized on maps. To our mind, really decolonizes the maps of northwestern Canada significantly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Alison, could you could you speak on that a little bit more? Why do you think it's important that these names, these Gwich'in place names, are, are represented on maps? Um, well, I think I'll have to... Um like really speak to and and support what our elders have said back in the 19 early 1990s that it's important to have these names recorded documented and officially recognized because uh, today like these names are not um, and back in the early 1990s were not um, really used and passed on they used to be say back in my earlier younger life it's important that these are recorded and officially put on maps or on signages for people to know and, and to use them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Ingrid, your team also publishes books and you know creates things like the online Gretchen Place Names Atlas. Why did you want to share your research that way? Well, again, you know, as Alistine said, it was the elders driving this. They were worried that these names and the, the knowledge behind them were being lost. So first of all, they wanted them recorded, but they also felt it was very important to share their knowledge with not only the, the Gwich'in, you know, the youth coming up and for future generations, but actually the, the general public. They felt, you know, their knowledge was important and had value for not only themselves, but the Canadian public. And as it turns out, I think even beyond Canada, you know, there are Indigenous groups that have looked to the work that we've done. And, and uh, you know, it's uh, we always get excited to hear about other place name studies. And, and then to create the maps, we created, I think we might be just a handful of, of projects that have created place name maps for the whole of the traditional land use area with all 900 names on them. And uh, we created those in partnership with the communities. And then the online atlas we created in partnership with Carleton University's Geomatic and Cartographic Research Centre. They have great technical skills that they could bring to the information that we had gathered and help us to make it public. So that online atlas has been available for a few years with all the 900 entries and then the maps are also available for download. There's 22 of them. And there's a large wall map as well that's uh, seven feet by five feet. 
so it's a nice big map. You can walk right up to it. And one of the Renewable Resource Council people that we were working with, she was so excited to see it and get a copy for her office that she rolled it out on the floor and she got right down there lying on top of that map just so she could see all the names. So I think really the sharing, the elders felt it was very important to record, but also share this knowledge for future generations of Gwich'in, but also the general public. Yeah. But you've even gone even further, even further still, (laughs) by creating a handbook for other Indigenous communities who want to do this research and reclaim their traditional place names. Um, Can you share with us what maybe your top tips are for communities who who want to, to want to walk this journey as well? It requires passion. I think passion for your language and passion for your the land. I think it's really important for elders, like to be working with the elders and for the elders to be standing with you in your work. I think we were uh, blessed to have so many of our elders with us that really encouraged us uh, to document and to work with them. I think that's a really important point is uh, to have the elders with you. And I think that made what we did a, a big success. I think there was so much work to do. Sometimes they just kept us, they just kept us going. It was a lot of, a lot of uh, really meticulous research that we did. And to have a good team working together and also being in the communities that want to have the information recorded as well, like the leaders and the and the communities that we worked with. The backing and the support of the elders, I think, is really important as well. Thank you for sharing that, for sharing some of your emotion. I appreciate that. And you've taken some of that wisdom and, in fact, have passed it on to uh, another generation. Recently, you spoke with a young man about about place names in the work that you've done. Can you tell me about that conversation? I was leaving uh, Tsigechik this summer, mid-July, and and going back from Tsigechik to Inuvik. And this young man, his name is Jared. He was a passenger on on the same in the same van that I was traveling to Inuvik to catch my flight back to Whitehorse. And honestly, from the time he walked into the van to the time we stepped out of that van in Inuvik, might have been about an hour and a half. And he was talking nonstop about his adventures and his travel and his learning on the land with his grandfather. A few times he uh, turned to me and he said, I just want to thank you, Alistine, for uh, documenting, uh, putting that book together, he said, and he meant the Gwichakwich and Gugwindak book. He said, thank you for documenting that. He says, I read, I read that book from beginning to the end. And he said, I want to read it again from the beginning to the end again, because there is so much information uh, in that book about our way of life and the stories about life on the land. Because what he was saying in that hour and a half ride 
was exactly what we had recorded. But it was good, I think, reaffirming and strengthening for him to read the stories of his own grandparents and his own ancestors about their own life on the land that he was living. And so a few times he uh, turned to tell me thank you. But I had to tell him, I said, well, who I think who we need to thank is the elders. I said, myself and Ingrid, we were a team working together. But again, it was the elders that really pushed us to write and to record and to write about their life on the land. So I was really, really touched by that trip from Tsigechik to Inuvik mm. in mid-July. Yeah. And how does it feel to know that this, the work that you, you started decades ago is, is not only helping return, you know, place names and reclaiming those territories to, for the Gwich'in, but, you know, you're helping young people connect to their language and, and their culture again? How does that live in you? It's actually, it feels very good because over the many years that I worked with Ingrid and now and again, we stopped, we said, we, we don't know whether what we're doing is going to be even helpful. We won't know the, um, the extent to which the work that we've done will be of any benefit to anyone and we said well we'll probably get our thank yous you know way after we're gone but actually it's actually happened sooner than that mm -hmm. it's actually happened uh, about 10 years after we both retired that the thank yous are are starting to come back to us and to the elders and Ingrid what about for you I mean uh uh, as somebody who's not Gwich'in, um, you have played such a huge role in, in restoring this, this, uh, these place names and this language and these connections, connections to culture. How does it feel for you? Well, it's felt like a huge privilege, first of all, to be um, part of the work and, and to be accepted into the communities, all four communities, and uh, working closely with these elders. I, I really consider them my family. You cannot do this kind of work, I don't think, without the passion, as Alistine said, and the long-term, it's a long-term type of work. And during that course of time, you get to know people very well. Like we stay when we're in the communities and people's homes. So, you know, you're part of the household. And over the years, you know, you really do become one big family. And I was very, very honored in 2008 to be made an honorary Gwich'in. You know, that's one of the highlights of my life, for sure, you know, mm. to be, have that honor. We really f feel we have fulfilled the best of our abilities, you know, exactly what the, the elders were, how, how they were directing us in terms of the work and what they hoped. Mm. Well, thank you so much for your time today and uh, this very important work. Thank, thank you. you. Alice Dean Andre is a Gwich'in researcher from Tsagechik, formerly known as Arctic Red River. Ingrid Critch, originally from Ontario, is an anthropologist and archaeologist. Their work began with the Gwich'in Social and Cultural Institute in the 1990s, and they're still going strong. You're listening to Unreserved on CBC Radio 1, Sirius XM, U.S. Public Radio, and Native Voice 1. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. 
Today, we're talking about problematic place names and the solutions that come from Indigenous communities. Our next stop is the traditional territory of the Algonquin people, also known as Ottawa, the capital of Canada. That's where you'll find many references to Canada's first Prime Minister, Sir John A. Macdonald. While he is rightly memorialized as such, he also has a darker history. Macdonald was the architect of the Indian Act, legislation that governs status Indians and life on reserves. He also oversaw the expansion of the residential school system. And that's why Algonquian poet and storyteller Albert Dumont wanted the name changed. Last September 30th, he gave notice to the National Capital Commission, the board that decides on name changes. Dumont said he would protest the parkway that year and every year until it was renamed. The previous name was Sir John A. Macdonald Parkway. It's going to be changed to the Kichi Zibi Mikan. My name is uh, Albert Dumont. Uh, I'm an Algonquin. I live at Kitigan Zibi, that's an Algonquin community near Manawaki, Quebec. Well, I wanted the change to happen uh, just because of who uh, Macdonald was. He was Canada's first prime minister, but he also initiated the Indian Act and all the atrocities of it that came after he was the prime minister. But it all began with him. It wasn't easy. The NCC didn't make it easy for us. And whenever I say us, I mean the other activists that worked uh, alongside of me to to protest it and uh, to do something about it. I contacted the NCC and I told them that, that every September 30th that I intended to uh, close down the uh, S-Jam Parkway for about six hours. And I was going to do this every uh, September 30th until the, uh, the name changed. I called them up and I told them my intentions. They said that I would need a permit. And uh, my response was that the past system ended in the 1950s and that I did not need a, their permission to walk on any roadway in Algonquin territory. So then I, I contacted the uh, Ottawa Police Service and I, and I let them know of my intentions. I said, I'm shutting down the parkway on September 30th from the War Museum to Parkdale Avenue. No ifs, ands or buts about it was something we're going to do. And the auto police service was very accommodating. Right away, they said, we'll work with you. On the day of the walk, uh, the police service asked, can you give a rough estimate on how many people you think will be there? And I said, well, I'm hoping that there will be about four or 500 supporters. But on the day of the walk, though, there was a, in the neighborhood of a thousand people that came. My heart was full of gratitude for the support. And the way we did the, the walk is that we would walk for several hundred feet and we'd stop and, and people could come forward and uh, give their comments. One lady had her little girl with her and uh, said uh, how, uh, how important it was to get rid of that name because the thought of her daughter being taken away to residential school was so crushing to her heart. So there was comments like that and 
Some people brought their guitars and sang songs. Somebody came and did um, an honor song for all the people that had taken the time out of their day. So it was, it really went well. And it means so much to me, you know, because uh, I've got five grandchildren and my oldest granddaughter is 22 years old right now. I'm uh, trying to impress upon her the power of activism and how uh, how we need to um, stand up for ourselves because if we don't, nobody else will sort of thing. So it was important for me to uh, get her on board with this uh, protest, uh, closing down the parkway. It just filled my heart, you know, to with pride to, to have her walk uh, alongside of me at, at this protest and for her to uh, learn the way that I prefer to protest just uh, to push forward. I'm grateful for that opportunity. It's officially uh, changed. Uh, the, the NCC had a meeting with the Algonquin leadership, uh, but they didn't invite me. But my chief here, uh, Dylan White Duck, gave me a heads up about it. And he said, I want to meet you half an hour before the meeting is scheduled at NCC headquarters. And I want you to walk in the room with me. I want to see their faces whenever I, whenever we walk in the room together. <laughs> That's what we did. That uh, there were some startled uh, looks <laughs> on some of the NCC representatives. So at that meeting, that they confirmed that it was going to be uh, official. It was going to happen. We can't back down, you know. We we really need to understand, like the Algonquins, for instance. We've never been conquered. Like, like I say, to, I say, I say to people. Uh, if we've been conquered, I want to see the terms of surrender. We cannot live our lives as if we've been conquered. We have to be active and not back down from anybody. We really can't back down. Earlier this year, the parkway was renamed Kichi Zibi Mikan, or Great River Road. Albert Dumont is an Algonquian poet, storyteller, and traditional teacher from Kichi, Zibi, and Nishinaabe First Nation. That's all our time on Radio Indigenous. This episode was produced by Rhiannon Johnson, Kim Kasher, Zoe Tennant, Laura Bone Stubing, and Aisha Smith Belgaba. Find us on our website, cbc.ca/unreserved, or download the podcast on the CBC Listen app. I'm your favorite cousin, Rosanna Deerchild, coming at you from Winnipeg in Treaty 1 territory. Genoskinamitnawa. I go say. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.